this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast. We talk about book things. This is episode 353, I think. Oh. I'm pretty sure, but only fairly sure. <laughs> recording on Thursday, February 13th, 2020. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky. Now that we're recording stuff out of order for bonus episodes, the sequential uh, nature of yeah. this has gone thrown into turmoil. By, yeah, by the end yeah. of today, I'll have two more in the can that are happening in the future. <laughs> you know, I don't know where I am. I got excited about, we talk about book things, because I think I'm just going to write a different intro every week now that we've decided like to it. scrap yes. you know, what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. And I thought I had the right episode number, but I also don't know where we are in time and space, because we we did a bonus episode yesterday, we're doing one today, there was one from last <laughs> week. What? Where even are we? <laughs> uh, yeah, I should say, I guess to give you a heads up for um, the next bonus episode, if you want a few days to to get ready for it, if you want to go rewatch some... Um, Bourdain, we're going to do 20 oh. Years Later of uh, Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, which came out in 2000. Hard to believe um, it's been 20 years, and I've got a lot to say. I'm going to save it for when we record an hour from now, um, but uh, we're looking forward to talking about that one. And I think this is one of those topics where, unless we were looking for things to do with bonus episodes, we never would have thought to do this, but I'm so glad we are. I'm Me so glad too. Are. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about it when he died and mm. I also think, yeah, we wouldn't have given ourselves an hour to do a whole episode about his work and about kitchen confidential without these bonus episodes. And I'll say if you're like, if your ears perked up and you want to go on this journey with us, there's a really beautiful um, newer, like updated paperback edition that has Tony's handwritten annotations inside it. I think those were done in 2012. Mm. And now um, they've added a an introduction by Eric Repair um, since Tony's death. It has it's a paperback with deckled edges and French flaps. It's a beautiful book. Um, it's the edition that I read this time around for this project. And I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I should also say, um, I first did Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential and Audio, which Bourdain himself Ooh, Yeah, that's a good narrates. experience. It's, uh, the, I did my first go around on all the Bourdain books and I read them all. It was all on audio. And he's he's unbelievable as a narrator. I mean, it's not a surprise that he was so good on TV. You could have, you could tell he was going to be good on TV just from his narration. It's natural. It's funny. Um, his Not everyone, I think actually I fall in this category. My writing cadence and my speaking cadence don't actually sync up extremely well. Mm. Whereas he talks like he writes. And that's not a put down on his talking or writing, which sometimes it's used as a euphemism for he's not a good speaker or not a good writer. But like his intonations and rhythms match um, what he puts down on the page in, in a way that's really quite, um, really quite unusual in my experience of writers and narrators. People are great narrators and I prefer someone who's writing about themselves to be their narrator. But there's just something, somehow he writes the way he's going to say the thing out loud. Or, or, or it goes together so well, and and I'm stepping on things I have to say about it, but I do really recommend. And Libby has it. You, this one now. I looked at it. There's no wait time for a kitchen conventional on the audio on my current on my um, local 
public library, which means a pretty good chance you can get it. And when I first listened to it, I blew through it, man. It's really interesting. A lot of it's dated, but we have got a lot of interesting things to say about it. But I'm so glad we found an excuse for mm-hmm. work reasons to go back um, and revisit. All right, let's do a sponsor, and then we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So, how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Meridu Deja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. Well, things seem to be going great at the Romance (laughs) Writers Association. Things really have turned around over there uh, in the week since... Basically, Courtney Milan was removed from her position on the ethics committee. I'm now trying to remember the exact the nature. Of, it's kind of like the Big Bang. Like yes. things happen so fast in the nanosecond after that it's hard to remember the initial. Yeah, I think uh, that was of it. that was the I think catalyst for everything. And in the in her reaction to that, she dragged into the light sort of a history of upsetting problematic racist um discriminatory behavior that had that she is alleging happened um, behind the scenes at the rwa then a lot of other people felt empowered to tell their stories about what they had experienced once the um, you know once the dam starts to break and several members of the board resigned at that point also the board the board president Damon Swade resigned and the executive director Carol Ritter um, mm-hmm. resigned in early January. The rest of the board resigned yesterday. Um, the folks who were remaining were the treasurer Nan Dixon and directors at large named Hannah Reese Barnes, Kate McMurray, Maria Powers, Melanie Zaretto, and Eliana West. Um, they are resigning effective immediately and there Mm. is an election a special election will be held between march 13th and 20th 
So maybe their resignation is effective then um, to elect a new basically interim board that will serve until August 31st, at which point the organization will elect an ongoing board per their regular schedule. This is uh, like, I think really could be the death knell. Like one of the conversations that um, I've seen happening behind the scenes at Book Riot about it is a joke that's not a joke that the W now in RWA stands for white. um, Mm. Because who is going to volunteer to be on this board (laughs) at this point? Um, There's no one left to have an entire board turnover and be without an executive director at the same time is a really tough spot for any organization because like traditionally the executive director is the one who maintains an organization's mission and forward Mm -hmm. motion as over time the board turns over with different members and there's there's no one here um like who there there will you know come like March 13th they won't have anyone there who has been in leadership um in the organization before maintaining any kind of continuity and that's real tough yeah I don't know enough about the ins and outs I'm sort of in the Nobel Prize jury kind of situation where I don't know the the bylaws and how everything's put together it seems to me that if RWA is going to survive in a way that the people who have resigned out of protest would be happy with um someone some of those people who aren't happy would have to volunteer to run for it it is one of those situations why do i want to save right this corpse of a thing that's been so crappy to peop to me and people like me and people that i care about why don't we go do our own thing like is there so much value in the idea the structure the bylaws the history of the rwa that the ARW, American Romance Writers, that has different bylaws and a different history and a fresh board and fresh thing. Mm -hmm. Like, what is there to say versus starting new? And I don't know enough about RWA, and I don't follow the TikTok of what's been going on well enough. But your whole board resigning for an interim (laughs) board that's then going to be (laughs) reelected kind of feels like the fall of Rome situation. Like, all the senators have stepped down, and, like, the the emperor is dead, and, well, that's kind of the end of it. It's hard to imagine it being resuscitated in a way that makes sense. How do you keep the wheels going forward when there's no one there to guide the vehicle i almost said the ship but ships don't have wheels we're like four minutes into this thing and i'm mixing well they have the wheel that you they don't drive the boat but they control the boats they don't have either they don't have wheels or this is where wheelhouse rudders or engines or yes they don't have any of it and you know like the other thing too is unless a bunch of people that have left especially the 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 people the writers in and you know mostly women of color in this particular Mm -hmm. genre come back you don't want to be a part of what's going to be left of this even if it survives i don't think like talk about w before um yeah it's only going to be more so now exactly that like if you are a white person who's a member of rwa or involved in the romance writing community and you wish to be an ally to the women of color who have stepped away for what sound like very good reasons it's it's tough to justify staying in this version of the RWA or taking on leadership. I can see a way where it would be like, well, there's an opportunity to try to do something different and to take this in a new direction. But I think there's real value in recognizing when something has run its course and allowing like stepping away and making space for like gracefully making space for something new to be made. And I think these women who have stepped away are going to make something new whether the RWA 
like participates and supports it or not. But for individuals there who are deciding about which path to take, yeah. I, think, I think it would be wise to get on board with whatever the new thing is, or at least hang back and see what mm-hmm. what new thing develops that might actually succeed in being inclusive and representative. And if someone knows or they've read something that lays out like, what would be the case for a person of good intent, let's say, to save the RWA structure? Like, what's there that's worth salvaging? That, mm-hmm. I, that I don't have a good sense mm-hmm. yeah, of. I, I, I know a little bit of what they do, but if it's bylaws and an email subscription list and membership fees, in this day and age, especially given what has happened to RWA, it feels like you could reconstruct, or not reconstruct, but make, some, make a new house rather than try to, to get all the bugs out of this particular one. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. more efficient just to start the new thing. Um, this next story is interesting for about 10,000 reasons, I would <laughs> yep. say. Uh, people sign book deals all the time, and we tend not to talk about book deals unless it's an unusual one where we have to scream about Marilyn Robinson or something else like that. I've thought about, and I was going to pitch this to you, Rebecca, at some point. I do actually follow book deal announcements fairly closely because I'm interested, and mm-hmm. we see things that don't rise to the level like this one would of making its own show. But like, what if we did a monthly segment on one of the regular shows of like, Five or three or three to five interesting book deals that happened this month that wouldn't get their own story, but like as a roundup would be interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Idea? I'm into like that? that. Let's do it. Yeah, and then maybe yeah. I, I'm envisioning then like setting a tracker for when those books are eventually mm-hmm. supposed to come out to follow up on them because that's also connected to yes, yes, yes. This yes. next story. Yeah, there's um there was I I don't remember. I'll find it for next week. But something came, was coming out. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And the release date is spring 2023. And I was like, okay. <laughs> It's, I, I feel like since I've been watching them, the timelines have been moving up, but every now and I get a reminder, like, that book's not done, is what that tells me. Yeah, yeah. That's a separate different thing. Anyway, this story is Colin Kaepernick, um, I guess now really more of a former football player than a current football player, if you if you don't know, um, took a knee during the national anthem and then was injured and then, boy, I, I don't, this is another thing where I've sort of followed headlines, either, but ten, depending on how you read the situation, was either blackballed by the NFL for his political opinions or or I guess the most generous reading is that he wasn't worth the hassle that comes with signing him to actually play for your football team, and even that's pretty bad. But anyway, he's become an interesting figure um, in progressive politics, especially about race, um, that has been very cagey. And I use that both, both, both well, not negatively, but like, He's profited like he had this huge Nike ad, right? He took, you know, mm-hmm. he's made money off his position, which get, grab that bag, no, no shouts there. Um, but even this is a continuation of that. Like he's releasing a memoir under his own Kaepernick Publishing. There will be an ebook and a print book, and then the audio rights are going to audio, and then there's going to be deals beyond that. This to me is so fascinating because I think this will sell. He's one of those people mm-hmm. that we've wondered about. Who's going to do a, a full... What big person, big player, I mean, literal and figurative player in books is going to do a largely self-published move? And we keep waiting for someone. We've seen like experiments here and there, but 
Does this count, Rebecca, as the one we've been looking for, or why or why not? Tell me what you think. I don't know, and I'm like extra fascinated. One of the 10,000 reasons that this is interesting mm-hmm. is that in 2017, we did talk on this show about how yes. Colin Kaepernick had gotten a $1 million book deal to write a memoir for the One World imprint at Random House. And I know this because I searched for Colin Kaepernick's right. name in our now 475-page-long podcast agenda. Oh, um, God. <laughs> I was like, I know we've talked about this before. So in 2017, he inked a deal for a million dollars, and that must not be happening. So we don't know hmm. the story there. Um, I'm going to guess this is like probably functionally the same book that he was intending yep. to, to write there, but something has happened. Um, he Either he got out of the deal or they let him out of the deal. Who knows? Um, maybe we'll hear that story eventually, hmm. but not doing it with um, Chris Jackson at Random House anymore over at, at One World. So... That I, I wonder, like, did he want to take on publishing it himself or was he released from his responsibility to PRH for some reason? Um, that's, I think, a really interesting question. I, and I think he stands a shot at doing this. The Audible mm-hmm. thing is really interesting. Like, I think it recognizes especially like memoir and especially celebrity memoir seems to do really well on audio and that there are folks that are going to gravitate toward that and that these days if a book looks good and is well produced and it's you know listed online for sale at all the places that you can buy books online if he has a good ad campaign behind this and i think that he has the money to fund one like hire a good marketer and a good publicist most readers won't have any idea that he's publishing it himself so Zero all that really idea. matters is I think I think it has a great shot at being successful and it might be the story that we've been waiting for because it, to be a big swing that is successful or at least really interesting it needs to be done by somebody who can treat it the way a publishing house would treat a big release like this mm. by a celebrity with like very effective marketing and publicity and Kaepernick certainly is a good like he's a good mouthpiece for himself um as you said very cagey about when and how information about his projects and what he's up to gets out. Um, And Audible has been experimenting a lot with how to do stuff like this. Um, So really, I'm just fascinated. Um, I'm and also really glad that we're going to get this because I think Mm -hmm. we talked at some point, like mid 2019, wondering aloud where the Colin Kaepernick memoir was. Um, So I'm happy that it's going to exist. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like to say this is self published is only maybe partially true. Who knows? Maybe he's hired traditional kinds of people to work for him at Mm -hmm. Kaepernick Publishing. I don't know. Maybe it's rather than self-publish his own imprint, and you really get into blurry lines there. But Audible exclusively releasing the audio and a multi-project deal with Audible. Audible is a publisher. Like, that's the thing, I guess, maybe I need to reframe my mental model of what Mm -hmm. self-publishing... They they, um, commission, they buy, they produce, they do all the things that a publisher does. So... Maybe I'm wrong to say this will be self-published. One of the one of the publishers, one of the distributors. I, I don't even know how you talk about this. Right? It's like Parasite, who just won the Oscar, right? It was distributed by Neon, right? So their producers get the Academy Award, I think. But they just bought the movie that when, when it was done. So it's very difficult to say. I guess. I guess when we talked about self-publishing in the what feels now like when the dinosaurs ruled the earth in the early days of like <laughs> ebooks and stuff. I think the thing we didn't see coming was the transmogrification of platforms into publishers, right? That, that, that publishers and platforms could meet in the middle. 
And I don't think there's any better example of that than Audible. And plus, they have such a dominant market share of audiobooks um, that people pay money for rather than get from the library that it's a platform, it's a publisher. Like, you can't be a self-publisher mm-hmm. and have an audiobook and not be in, in bed with Audible to some degree, right? I guess yeah, and... And it turns out I'm like now down at the very bottom, like literally the last line of this piece from Deadline about this deal that Kaepernick Publishing will be in partnership with Melcher Media, which is distributed by an Ingram brand. And Melcher Media, I can see, has done books in partnership with... Martha Stewart, Oprah, the Dear Evan Hansen musical. Oh. They p- produced the book for, like, the companion book for Stranger Things and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Hamilton and Mr. Robot and a Nike thing. Actually, Nike and Gatorade and a whole bunch of sports-related things. Oh, and L.L. Bean, so I'm going to be buying that immediately. Mm. Um but like legit establishment and a, a beautifully made books. Like one of them is Oprah's The Wisdom of Sundays and The Path Made Clear, which is a beautifully um, presented and packaged book that just collects a bunch of things from Oprah's super soul interviews. Mm-hmm. But like I had like I received that as a gift. I had no idea that like I, I work in books and I didn't even look to see who published it. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, I guess there's another way to think about it. Okay, so it's Kaepernick Publishing sounds like they're basically hiring or will do some sort of rev share with these other corporations. Like, is that self-publishing? Like, if you hire a mercenary squad to help you do the thing? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't What know. do we I'm mean? Not, what, what do we I'm, talk about when we talk about self-publishing no, anymore, I guess? That's like, not a podcast I want to host. No, no. Um, he does, it does say here near the bottom of the piece as well that Kaepernick claims he founded his own publishing company to reinforce the importance of black ownership, which will extend to authors, writers, and creative, or and creators with whom he works. So this sounds to me like he is trying to functionally generate his own imprint, imprint yeah. um, that will be produced by Melcher Media and distributed by this Ingram brand, mm-hmm. um, which this is a great way to have creative control of what you want your thing to be. And then to have like, if he's in charge of the content functionally, um, then work with folks who have access to manufacturing and production and, mm-hmm. you know, distribution. And presumably there's some marketing in there somewhere. Um, I think this is really smart. Very interesting. It does. It does make you wonder. I guess if you want to be the ultimate yes/no person, right? Then, even if you have to build the world anew and basically make your own imprint or publishing house, if that's what you want, you get out of your deal with Random House. Yeah. Even as great as Chris Jackson in One World is, mm-hmm. and I think they are great. They're publishing interesting books. They did Water Dancer. They did um, Kevin Wynn's book New mm-hmm. Ways, which we were excited for. And there's other books on there. I think is the next yacht Jesse from. One world. I might maybe. I'm not sure. But anyway, really interesting books that that Kaepernick's book would fit would into. Except if he wants to be the one calling the shots, ultimately, you can't do that. You don't want to do that. So you either have to self-publish, which I guess basically means do your own titles only in sort of a do-it-yourself kind of way. This is not the do-it-your the DIY nature that we I think ascribe to self-publishing as a as a program this is someone with a lot of political and cultural clout and some scratch that's saying wait a minute if i'm going to do this thing Mm -hmm. let's own the sucker yeah and i I think like that's an excellent point about having ultimate creative control of it because even if you get your own imprint like even if prh offered colin kaepernick his own imprint or to exactly right to hop up in the conversation bourdain had an imprint with echo you are the curator, but you're not the 
end all be all decision about like the PL sheet mm-hmm. <laughs> and what kind of advances you're going to get to give to people. You still are then reporting to like the larger publisher and the structure of that publishing house. So like this is the way to do it if you want full control of how a thing looks and whose books you publish and how many of them and what kind of political risks you might be taking with them. Right. Well, and, ca- and financial risks too. I mean, yeah. you call the shots, you also are forking over the checks, at least at some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing by having your book published with a traditional publishing house is they're footing the bill. Now, if it goes great, they will make most of the money. But if it goes sideways, that's why you got your advance. Um, yep. So there are, there are trade-offs that come with it. It's not Now that I think about it this way, it's not surprising to me that Co- Kaepernick, knowing what he stands for, knowing his own experience in the NFL, frankly, and some of these things about the NFL, that he came around to the idea for whatever means to say, you know what? I could be the owner rather than the player. <laughs> like, I don't want to repeat what happened mm-hmm. to me in the NFL. Um, yeah, even, I hope he'll even talk in about a, it. Yeah, even in a more, I don't know, conducive environment like One World would have been. Um, interesting to see. Okay, let's do another break and then uh, talk about some more fun stuff. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. We talk, I guess this is also nothing. I think if we did a search in our Google Doc, we'd get some hits for this one. Um, in somewhat of an about face or maybe, I'm not really sure how to describe this, but Amazon is um, ramping up its... 
I don't even know what you'd call it. It's, um, I don't know, kicking off Nazi books from Amazon's bookstore. And Amazon's bookstore, of course, is not a physical thing. It is the idea of Amazon.com, the place that people go to buy books. Um, the headline here in, in the New York Times, I think, is very interesting. It said that Real once said it would sell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now has banished some objectionable volumes. Um and erased swastikas from a photo book about a Nazi takeover. This this is the kind of problem you have if you're a platform and you basically publish, uh, you sell 60% of books and 90% of e-books. You're going to get a lot of, let's call it charitably bycatch here. And then what do you do about that? Um, and historically, Amazon has been more hands-off than maybe someone like me would be, I think, in this regard. <laughs> now, the scale the scale of this is hard to do because there's so many, like, the number of, self, we talk about self-publishing books, there's also a lot that no one ever hears about that are nasty and terrible. What do you do with those? How do you staff? How do you filter? Um, this is This is good, ultimately, I think, but it does get to, you almost have like, we've said this before about these giant platforms. You start to have sort of like government kinds of problems, right? Government kinds of questions because basically you regress to the mean and you're taking on everyone. Unlike the government, you're not constrained by the constitution um, necessarily where you have to, pu- you know, have to let people publish things or at least, you know, largely so. Amazon has its corporate right that they're not going to get prosecuted for censorship because this is not what censorship is. Don't email us. Um, so ultimately good. I wonder why now here at the end, I guess a feeling like Amazon's, Amazon's dominance, they've decided to turn it around at this point when they could have done it a long time ago. Um, I'm not, but I guess I, you can hear me struggling with what to make of this, I guess is what I'm saying. I think, hmm, I think that's a great question. I think that the cultural conversation has moved in Mm. a way that now there's a lot of incentive for Amazon to do this, Um, much more incentive than there was. Like in there, further down in this piece from the Times, they note that uh, in 2010, when news media discovered a self-published book promote that was about like how to be a pedophile functionally, yeah, um, that was available on Amazon, Amazon's reaction was to issue a statement saying that they believe that it is censorship to not sell certain books simply because we or others believe the message is objectionable. Um, That statement ultimately was weakened when there was a lot of objection and Amazon did ultimately pull Mm -hmm. the book. But I think that despite the fact that we continually have to repeat on this show and that like the book journet is perpetually talking about the fact that a bookseller deciding not to stock a book is not censorship. I think we are like gradually coming to a place where more people understand that. And Amazon's um, mission is to provide a positive customer experience. And that's the explanation that they're giving for pulling these books is like, this is not a positive customer experience for us to be selling white supremacist material. Um, Mm -hmm. I agree with them. And there's a great point made here that most brick and mortar bookstores do not stock white supremacist material for the exact same reason. It would alienate customers. Like I don't want to noodle down to the fountain bookstore in downtown Richmond and be, you know, like browsing romances and current events and then come across Nazi propaganda on the shelves. Mm. This would not make me happy about giving my money to that business. Mm -hmm. And so that we think of, 
Amazon and online retail as somehow different, like maybe because they have unlimited shelf space, so to speak, they should stock everything, I think is incorrect. Um, And the like or an interesting per, one of the people inter- interviewed in this piece is someone who's been a bookseller since 2001 and saying he doesn't condone the material but he believes people should be free to read what they want and like this idea that amazon not selling something means that a person can't read it or that the material has been censored like those the, the logic just does not follow there i i think that amazon has come around to this is the better move for optics and PR. And I hope that this also aligns with Amazon's values as a company, that they don't wish to be a place that makes white supremacist material available. But like the baseline business case, I think, is compelling at this point. You could be right that maybe it was someone where there's like enough of this. Like, I don't know what the, you know, maybe the business, they, they, they convinced someone or someone got control that decides about this. Like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this and we can do this now. Maybe we could have done it then. They almost really could have done it then. It could be that simple. Sometimes you stop doing things you don't want to do and you change your mind, which I think we also sometimes forget that corporations are just made up of people and people change and <laughs> things turn over. Like, And they may just want to do stuff differently now. It doesn't have to be you know, a foolish consistently as the yeah. hobgoblin of little minds, as Emerson once said. You don't have to hold on. You don't have to keep a position just because you once had it, um, especially if the new position is a better one, too. I think we were talking about this maybe last week or in some other kinds. We've been podcasting so much. I now have no idea when we said <laughs> what, uh, to whom, when. But I think your point about people equate being able to have their book bought on Amazon or available through the library or bought at their local bookstore with censorship is because they're sort of skipping over a middle term in the in the syllogism, which is they equate, equate freedom of speech with being able to make a living mm-hmm. saying whatever they want. They, they equivalent being able to write whatever they want with having access to the same platforms right. that other kinds of speech do. That's not what it is. You can still get a printer and print up your screeds and distribute them by hand or sell them by mail order or whatever, as long as it doesn't break the law in some other way. You know, like I think one of the things about the pedophilia book was that there was a case that was actually um, illegal because it was condoning mm. or um, uh, what was the, what's the word facilitating or encouraging or otherwise. You know, basically um, making unlawful acts easier, to, helping people commit unlawful acts. Kind of like the, like the anarchist cookbook. You, you can't. It's not legal to tell someone how to build a bomb. That's illegal. I think I'm pretty sure about that. Anyway. But like people equate, they, they move the goalposts from being able to print common sense on a printer like Thomas Paine did in their basement and distribute it by hand. That's what we're talking about in freedom of speech. We're not talking about you can sell an ebook on Audible that says whatever the hell you want, no matter how bad it is. When we're really talking about like, like the First Amendment is the freedom to speak without without punishment by the government. Right, you know, right, right. It's, yeah, it's not even about can you sell your book at all, much less can you sell it where you want to be able mm-hmm. to sell it, but can you express the opinion that you have without being thrown in jail yeah. or killed? And I think, you know, as you were talking and my brain was continuing to spin on this, I think maybe one of the reasons that Amazon is doing this now is the stakes feel higher now because we have spent like four years since the last election cycle, looking at what white supremacist propaganda Mm. does Mm -hmm. in our culture. And maybe somebody at Amazon has started to feel responsible for facilitating that information being disseminated and not wanting to be a party to that. Because like we 
it was very present what happened in Charlottesville. It's been very present on the internet for the last several years since the last election cycle. It's It continues to be on the table in both very like subtle dog whistle kind of ways and very direct ways. Mm-hmm. And we're rolling into another election cycle that um, maybe they've just decided we don't want to be part of helping this crap get out there. And I'm down yeah. with that too. I mean, the, 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 the slippery soap argument, which I don't believe in, but just to, to throw it out there as well, if they can do that to this book with things that I do agree with, or I feel like people actually don't mean this when they say this, they could do it to other books. And the truth is they could. And mm-hmm. that's where the marketplace of ideas thing kind of comes in. If they did it and people didn't like it, they would go elsewhere. And then Amazon's position would weaken. I think probably what you said, both now and what we probably said then, or at least you said then, which it was in their financial interest not to police them in the old days but now maybe it is in their interest and they care it could be they both both of those things could be true as well as which may be most likely right and the reality for these people is that if there really were a demand for this material they would be getting hits to their own websites where they could charge Mm. $25.99 for a pdf download of the exact same text right yeah work on your seo people that's all i've got to say about that um let's see i guess this is in in news from Local garbage fire messes. Um, uh, let's see. What's the, what's what's new about this one? What 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 is there any spin on this? Is there is this a you same know, shirt different day situation? I've only been able to get to a little spin on this. In Grand Haven, Michigan, a group of parents are um trying to get the school board to remove books that cover topics related to sex and sexuality, which the parents consider to be sexually explicit. Now, the titles of these books are not mentioned in this piece. I've Googled around for a bunch and I couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. But the books in question were available to children as young as fifth grade and covered topics including rape, statutory rape, and oral sex. But we don't know, like, were the books that include that talked about oral sex available to fifth graders? Are we talking about like a fifth grade book that someone perceived as problematic? And then like a 10th grade book that Mm contains like there's just not enough info here. Um, The school board, I think, has done a very thorough job trying to help parents understand what books are available and give them ways to be involved. So they announced earlier this week that if parents are concerned about what their kids are reading, they can request their child's login in order to monitor the content that the kid is checking out. They can request a weekly email that lists the materials the child has checked out. They can meet with school librarians to request restrictions on specific titles or searchable genres. And they can choose not to have their child check out any books or even use the school library and instead provide their own independent reading material, which my Mm -hmm. eyebrows are like all the way at the top of my head Mm -hmm. about that last one. um, This seems like a school board really trying to find ways to make parents feel comfortable without actually removing material from a library. Um, That's a tough line to walk. And it seems like they're trying it. Some of the parents are unhappy because it puts the burden on the parents. Like literally, that's the term uh, used in this piece to determine. And as I Googled around for it, um, the pieces that I found were paywalled. So I wasn't able to get into them. But it looks like this is a small group of parents um, who are it's part of a group that's like Grand Haven conservative parents or something like that. And that the titles are actually all related to LGBTQ issues. Mm. But very, I think, tellingly, or at least interestingly, 
the specific titles of the books aren't listed in any of the news pieces I was able to find about this. So I think this is same shirt, different day mm. um, with even more like obfuscation around what the real motivation of these parents is. Because you, you can see, I mean, as you're sort of intimating right there, this could go a couple different ways. It really could be the library saying, okay, maybe what if we were more of a clearinghouse for helping parents make decisions, right? You want, you want to protect your kids from thing, X, whatever it is. Well, here's here's the here's what the topography looks like. Here's that you can help make the decisions, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to take the books out, but we're also not going to just put them out there with no context or additional information mm-hmm. to help you make a decision. It is interesting. Cause here's the thing. Screening everything your kids consume is work, and it's a lot of work. And that means you basically have to pre-screen or read or whatever a bunch of stuff your kids are going to or or potentially could consume. I know this because I watch almost every movie my kids see before they watch it, except Pixar and some other things like that. And you know what? It's work. I choose to do that because I care about it. I have different sets of cares, I think, than some of these people that are trying to um, protect, protect, there's not enough air quotes in the world, their kids from LBGTQ themes or whatever else they they think that's going to mean. It's hard to know because like, what is the library's role here? It's like, are they the curators? Are they just shelves where stuff sits on? Are they the deciders of what kids can and can't do? The answer, unfortunately, is kind of all of them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. depending on depending on where you are and the kid and the in the subject, it's very difficult. And I think there's some justice in having parents feel some of that difficulty, frankly. Um, but that's that's my opinion of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're going to take one last break. We're going to do a non-book thing after the break, but stick around for that. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmail. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammam's secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Lavender Khan and Little District Books. LavenderCon, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C. It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA plus authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of the Blood Debts duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottis with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newson, author of My Government Means to Kill Me, 
And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20 plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival. Um, we were kind of tipping our hand by using good place... <laughs> uh, replacement value expletives uh, in the show. Both you and I really loved The Good Place that just recently ended. Um, it had a, a Da Vinci Code reference in the re- in the in the finale. I should say we are going to spoil the shirt out of the show. So if you haven't seen it, you haven't seen the finale, you haven't seen one single frame. You know, go go uh, go with demons um, through the rest of this. This segment, we don't have an outline. We didn't prepare. Mm-hmm. We talked about we might talk about it. So, what do we want to say about the good place, Rebecca? Like, I, I'm not even sure wh- where to begin. I mean, maybe let me ask you this: Where on your network half hour TV shows does this rank? Ooh. Why don't you think about that for a minute? I hit you with that. Yeah. And the reason I frame it that way is because I have Jeff's heuristics for ranking TV shows. Um, there's a huge tome right here. I don't need to show it I was going to say, like, shocking. You already have a, yeah. a whole I think set we of ta- criteria. We talked about this when we talked about Mad Men um, a, a million years ago that I think it's, I think for me, it's the best TV show I've ever seen because I grade on curves that if you don't use guns, it's a different show. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Right. For, you know, the Breaking Bads and the Sopranos of the Worlds. Like they have Chekhov's gun, you know, it's going to be used like violence and death and that kind of thing has its own kind of stakes. I think where the stakes are more character, it's much more difficult to do and I find much more satisfying. And though network half hour comedies are its own, I can't compare that to The Wire. I just not going to. It's a, it's a different thing. So I put it in its own category, which is network half hour comedies. But even as I say that, I'm like comparing this to Friends seems absurd in the highest degree. And maybe that's where we should start. It's singularity. Mm-hmm. is what made it so special, I think. Yeah, I think so. Like the pitch for it is functionally, this is a half hour comedy about yes. morality, ethics, and how to be a good person. And you're going to like learn a lot about philosophy and face d- like discussions about difficult, like eternal ethical mm-hmm. dilemmas and it will be fun and funny and charming and warm and sweet and surprising and creative. And like, I just, that's a tough pitch. Like somebody walks into the boardroom at NBC and is like, so here's the deal. We're going to make a yeah. show about how do you, what does it mean to be a good person? How do you become a good person? And it's not going to be preachy, but it should be inspiring. It's That's so hard to do that yeah. I, I was in on the idea of it, but like the execution of it all the way through is, I think singular is the right word there and is such a level up. Like Mike Shore's other work is incredible. And you know, we both deeply mm-hmm. love Parks and Recreation. I know Brooklyn Nine-Nine yep. is one of yours too, but this is like a whole other beast. 
It really is. And it's they some they somewhat Trojan horsed people's affection for the Shuriverse of his other because mm-hmm. it tonally on on a beat to beat moment it can feel a lot like those other shows, but the superstructure is so completely different. And I think the first season of The Good Place is you know, it's in the pantheon for me of of T V seasons of all time. Push comes to shove, especially I think the 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 subsequent seasons. I all I really love them, and I'm glad they exist. But at the end of this season finale, the first episode, I'm not sure I ever felt like that about a TV show before. That anything could happen. Yep. I had no idea mm-hmm. what to expect. And also, I wanted another one. But I also might be okay if there was never a single episode after that. <laughs> yeah. um, my friend Jeremy and I talked about that. Of like, it's like a it's like a magic trick of the soul what they've pulled off of the good place. And you think about people like sure is a little unusual among all TV creators, but even amongst the TV creators that have gotten multiple swings at the plate and sort of built on their success. You think of like, you know, the classic ones like the Dick Wolfs of the world and like law and order, um, uh, Poughkeepsie and all of this stuff. Like interesting, like some people do more of the thing and the NCIS is whatever. And even like Shonda Rhimes kind of does similar kinds of things, whether it's scandal or Grey's Anatomy or whatever. Sure. Took his, kind of um, bonus project and made this. And it feels like kind of the show, I don't use, bo- I mean, I don't born to you, only who could make, but also kind of felt like everything else was sort of leading to this chance mm-hmm. to do this kind of thing. Because I don't know, no one's going to do this with a, a, a new person, right? He needed right. like three giant hits <laughs> in yeah. order to get a yes for this. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, I have not watched much Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but there are seeds of this that you can see running through or threads of it running through Parks and Recreation. Yeah, that, yeah. You, you know, like the Leslie Nope is kind of a proto- Eleanor, but who starts as a good person instead. Mm-hmm. Like she's so concerned with what does it mean to be good and dedicated and she kind of ties herself up in knots and sometimes she missteps because she wants so hard to be good and I think you can kind of see sure like working out some of this on her like she's not quoting Kierkegaard you're not talking about the trolley problem with Mm -hmm. like Ben and Leslie aren't sitting around talking about philosophy but those characters lives are still guided by these kinds of questions um, that like existentialness and I loved that like I loved that about Parks and Rec but I really loved seeing it be made the central focus of mm. of a television show, but especially of a half hour comedy. Like, what is it to be a person? What are the things that like almost everybody is really consumed by in the big picture of their lives? Like, am I good? Mm. And and how how will I know? Right. And am I doing this right? Like, am I living my life the right way? Am I going to feel good about it in the end? How would I even know? And getting to experience that and have reflective moments about it through the lens of these characters who are dead and have to look back at their lives was just really amazing. Um, I'm not sure what else we even want to say if without making into its own like um, adaptation, even like we did with Watchmen, which it could probably bear, but it's four seasons versus one, which is part of the charm of doing the Watchmen one. I mean, probably if you (laughs) were to do it for the good place, maybe you could probably reasonably watch the first season and the last season. Because the middle seasons yeah. are interesting and a lot goes on, but you could kind of draw a through line and maybe, you know, with one additional episode or two, you could put it up. I think where they start and where they end is so important. And what really struck me as being moving and interesting and radical about the end, and I'm really going to spoil it now, mm-hmm. is the idea of being good is one thing, but ultimately 
the the question the show was asking was about happiness. And that's what really struck me as being the bait and switch because frankly, being a good person is not complicated. It's not easy, I don't think, but it's not ultimately complicated. And that's one thing I think Chidi was trying to teach Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Like he thought it was more, he felt it was more complicated than it actually was. Like he was, you can get things wrong and still be good where Chidi was trying to be right all the time and that yeah. got him into trouble. But the the more radical question to me is ultimately that happiness is fleeting. It is yeah. impermanent. And and permanent happiness is a contradiction in terms. Like Aristotle's famous definition, which I don't think made it into the show, though it could have easily, is the desire to have the things you want and keep them forever, right? And like the keeping them forever, but then the having them and knowing you're going to have them forever actually isn't happiness, weirdly, is what the show postulates. And it's a situation we never get into. But ultimately, the end goal, the winning, how to win the, the TV show Good Place was to get to the place in the afterlife where you're ready to no longer exist, which is a crazy <laughs> thing for a TV show to say in a half-hour comedy network TV. It is. And I, like, I keep going back to this idea of Mike Shore going in to pitch this show and being like, so it's not about being happy. It's about like, I ultimately think really the show was concerned with meaning more mm-hmm. than happiness. And Yeah, and they get all and, rolled into one. You're totally yeah, right about that. Yeah, and they do, all, they do get all rolled into one. And certainly self-help gets rolled in that direction of like how to be happier. Um, but there's been a lot of really interesting research. And I read a great book a couple of years ago that I'll have to remember the title to, but there's something about meaning in Mm -hmm. it that sort of gathers all of this contemporary like social psych research that really says like at the end of life the way to be satisfied with the life that you've lived is to feel that your life was one of meaning not that it was one that was happy and that we see the characters really get to that in the last couple of episodes about like okay you're ready to leave when you feel like you've given all the things that you have to give not when you feel that you've gotten all the things you wanted to get right um i i loved I loved seeing that, and I loved Im- like imagining the conversations that I hoped viewers were having in mm-hmm. their own hearts and with each other about it afterwards. About like what does that mean, and what would it like? Really, the question that Shore has left us with is, what will you need to feel like you can go? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's it's fascinating, and I mean, there's there's an element to the show that is high level college dorm bull session, which is great. There's mm-hmm. there's a part of it too. And its treatment of philosophy as a f- insufferable former philosophy major <laughs> is, you know, look, it's surface because it's what it is, but it's there. I mean, you yeah. get te- you get really abstruse references to text. Plus, for my money, for me, has the single greatest joke of any TV show I've ever seen. And it was, who died and left Aristotle in charge of philosophy? And Chidi's <laughs> like, Plato! I mean, it's just... It's just I can't, I don't know what, I you know, it, I can go, I can go, I can walk through the green door after that like for TV is, jokes. I think that this show is like the center of our mutual wheelhouse mm. for a lot of reasons, but the marriage of highbrow and lowbrow and like yes. intellectual and just straight up funny was really beautifully done for those same reasons. Like you got those jokes, but then they also had like, I think mostly it was Megan Amram who did the work of the punny names for places. Yeah, right. Um, and it was in, body in a way that, net, I mean, is yeah. the limits of the network TV and all sorts of stuff there. I guess, as I mean, we kind of said the, the nut of our affection for it. Any particular shout-outs to characters? Like, a beautiful, wonderful cast in a lot of ways. Anyone stand out for you as being a revelation or doing having the hardest job or executed the best? Mm. Just who do you give... Um, special props to for the I give I think special props to Ted Danson because he was just 
it was just delightful and fun watching yeah. him all the way through this and such a sort of evolution of him as an mm-hmm. as an actor but also like i just want to see ted danson saying take it sleazy for the <laughs> rest of my life like if every morning i got woken up with a gif of ted danson saying take it sleazy or like that like yeah I that know, would be great and um manny jacento who played jason i think he had the hardest job i was because, that was my pick tell me about why i was because the character is supposed to be so dumb. Mm-hmm. And it like I think it would be both fun and really difficult to play that kind of character because he also has depth and he's coming to realize some things. And the interviews that I've read and the stuff that I've watched where the whole cast gets interviewed, like I think that that character is the furthest off of the actors. Oh, I haven't seen know. any... I've intentionally avoided any interviews. I don't want to hear sure. I, <laughs> I will probably go back and read like the stuff now, like how the thing was... But I didn't want to know anything yeah, week to I week, think, episode like, to in, episode. In five years, I want a really good, long um, yeah. oral history of this mm-hmm. <laughs> that interviews all of them and talks about it. I haven't watched too much, but like I follow a bunch of them on Instagram and occasionally I click through to stuff. I think he had the hardest job because that character represented a really big arc. Like, they all had arcs, but he had a really big arc and a lot of work to do in having to, the character had to go the most way, the farthest way to understand this stuff. Um, and he just played it so well. It was fun to watch you without being mean to Jason's character. And yeah. we got to laugh at him, but also really care for him in a way that I think that's just a tough line to walk. And he did it, I thought, really, really well. I, I think... Again, I don't know anything about acting other than having watched a million things. <laughs> but what he was doing was different than what the other character, what the other actors mm-hmm. had to do. It was just a different the mannerisms, the speech patterns, the facial expressions, like his whole being was just operating on a different sort of satirical meta level. Yeah, like he that only have... Jamila Jamil kind of had mm-hmm. to deal, but even then it wasn't quite so fully embodied as a I don't even know, like a whole like identity manneristic package rolled into one. Like, like it was he, remarkable shit. I, yeah, I think so. Like he could have, it could have so easily come off as like a caricature of yeah. itself, but it was so And believable. sometimes it was, and sometimes it kind of was, but then it would yeah. come back in ways yeah, I don't understand. Like, that's the, I think the first time I really realized it was the first time I saw Manny Jacinto get interviewed on something. And I was like, oh, he's a completely different <laughs> person. Like it was shocking to me that the voice coming out of him and the speech patterns were not Jason Mendoza's voice and speech patterns. And, you know, like talking about Blake Bortles. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> like um, that just so much incredible work there. Um, and I just, I loved the relationship between Eleanor and Chidi and mm. the evolution there of like, you know, and I think we saw this with Leslie and Ben on Parks and Rec, like two people really just trying to like figure it out mm. feels just so true to life. Like this is just so honest about what any kind of relationship is, but some like a long-term romantic partnership that goes the arc from like hot diggity dog. We kissed for the first time. And it was amazing to like, what are like, we're, we got to beat with each other through like 400 versions of eternity now. And what does that mean? And how, how do we make this work? I loved watching that. And it's one of those shows too, where you could, I think, get hung up on the show's internal logic and the rules and are they obeying the rules? I mean, there is a world in which you could really nitpick it to death about, especially in the middle two seasons. Mm. But I think if you can let some of that go and follow the emotional and and intellectual beats at the same time, I think they go hand in hand. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I think the show is trying to pull off is like how you think about things and how you feel about things. Neither of them has to win. They can work hand in hand, which I really appreciated too. 
um, it is satisfying in the end, in in a way that it's not. I mean, like both of us like interesting messes, and I think in a lot of ways the finale is an interesting mess in the best possible way. There's enough mm-hmm. ellipses and ambiguity and question marks, but also. <sighs> You don't want the next episode. You don't want one more episode to wrap it up. So I'm not sure how you do it. I think for me, it's probably one of the best season or series finales I've ever seen, if only degree of difficulty. Degree of difficulty alone um, puts it up there. But for a combination of paying off the intellectual, emotional, philosophical, existential, ontological questions that it was asking without being descriptive and overdetermined. I, I just don't mm-hmm. know how you do this. It's a wonder to me and a real a miracle of a show for something yeah, that's I on agree. network television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that it was out on NBC and that enough people watched it to run it for four seasons. Yeah. Like a, a half hour comedy about philosophy and what it means to be good. Yeah. <laughs> like this encourages my soul that people are interested in this and wanted to watch it. It's so funny too, because I think you, like I grew up on the generation of network comedies like the Seinfelds, the Friends, the Everybody Loves Raymonds, mm-hmm. which... I liked all of those shows. I will watch an episode of any of them if they they come on. But if not outright misanthropic, they certainly weren't. Their anthropology wasn't super high. <laughs> their opinion of humans <laughs> writ large wasn't yeah. super high. The Shurver, say what you will about the ticks, and it has mannerisms and ticks and flaws and foibles like any universe, in any, any universe does, any artistic vision does. But what's inescapable is kind of a a hearthstone of goodness that it's Mm -hmm. trying to articulate that you just don't, I don't, I can't think of an analog. Like seriously, outside of children's TV programming, I can't think of anything that's so like open hearted. I can't think of anything. It is so open hearted. And so you do have to buy in from the get go on this show to the notion that people are fundamentally good and want to be good and want to help and support each other. And that is, kind of optimism doesn't usually sell. It's hard to sell it. It's hard to package it. Um, it's like the antithesis of mm-hmm. Mad Men, right. you know, and yeah, Breaking yeah. Bad, like most great TV is made about people who aren't very good because that's complex and interesting. It's really hard. It's the, it's, make... a, it's, a, it's the gun problem writ yeah, large, right? It is. It's like, the it's gun it's problem really, writ large. It's really hard to make people who are just trying to live a good life yeah. interesting on TV or in a mm-hmm. book or anything, like just a nice person or a good, a fundamentally good person who's muddling through. That's that's a next level of difficulty. It's a, it's just really hard. And I feel like Mike Shore cleared that bar. And then some, I totally agree about the finale. It was very satisfying. It left enough questions unanswered and really every season set up a different challenge for the writers of the show. And they met each one. Like I started the second, third and final season being like, how are they going to do this? Mm -hmm. And by the, and there are, you're right. There's some messes in the middle seasons, but by the end of the season, it was like, Oh, okay. They did it. Like, they have done the thing that they set out to do in each season. I loved it. I've been thinking, like, do I want to rewatch the whole thing or do I just want to let it like live in my heart the way that it felt to to have watched it and experienced it with the wonder and the surprise was such a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea, I mean, much like the setup of the show where basically in the afterlife, 
the supernatural beings that live there have carte blanche to create whatever they want. Mm-hmm. The show kind of also had the same power from episode to episode. They could do kind of whatever they wanted. They they had the same blank slate that the the architects had, and to watch them manifest different versions and put the characters in different situations, and then have the creators and the characters get quote unquote out of them, episode by episode and season by season. There's a there's a structuralist like there's like a post structuralist reading of this that I would have really been into reading when I was 27. I'm too old for this now. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm sure there's some fascinating academic criticism um, oh, of the yeah. show out yes. there as well. All right. Anything else, Rebecca, before we said maybe as much as that, that was a pretty good un, mm-hmm. unplanned, I guess, tribute to the good place. Yeah. I yeah. feel, I feel satisfied. If you're sure, what do you do next? After that? I mean, good Lord. What, what, what? I don't, I don't know. know. I, like I, I think that. Well, he continues to be able to do something new and different and more challenging each time. So I am sure there will be another thing from him. Yeah. But I'm also fine if there's not. Like no, no, I'm is, not. Not as a consumer. I just mean if I'm Michael. Oh, sure. Yeah, I did he? I did, mean, does he walk through the green door? Like, is this your green door? Uh, I, uh, situation I, as a as a TV artist. Maybe. Man, I think it would certainly be justified for yeah. this to be his green door. Like, this is an accomplishment. Um, yeah. And I think it would be great, like totally acceptable and understandable for him to be like, I've done the thing. This was my work mm. and I have done it. And then go on and do something else or sit on the beach for a while. I don't know. But like, clearly Mike Shore has read some philosophy and is concerned with these questions. Yeah. And this to me sort of hints that like there might be other things for him to do that aren't around. He's got a novel in him. Come on, Mike Shore. You've got a novel in you. I know you do. You've got a half a draft of something stashed away somewhere on some some external hard drive. Some kind of like great, very accessible, funny, fun, like podcast about philosophy. Like this is the thing that I want now. I want to listen to Mike Shore talk about philosophy for, you know, like five minutes twice a week. Yeah. Super good. Yeah. Hi. So uh, A on the good place. I mean, it really is. The first season is what? Six, eight episodes? I can't even I think remember it's now. Eight, yeah. And they're 22 minutes. They're on Hulu. You got yourself a Friday night and you haven't yeah. checked it out. I, I, I would be shocked, especially as someone who listens to this show, if you weren't taken in um, by the particular charms of the good place. Uh, I, I, would, I would be surprised. I, no one I've talked to that have seen it hasn't at least recognized that it is a uh, curveball. Mm-hmm. of interesting um, design and, and angle. All right, that's our show. Um, we said next week you're going to hear us talk about Kitchen Confidential, which we're going to record in five minutes. So who knows what <laughs> untold horrors we will commit <laughs> against that book and Tony Bourdain's uh, work and, and legacy. We will try to do um, it justice. Thank you, guys. Uh, podcast at bookriot.com. If you want to send us an email, you can get show notes to this and all episodes of Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Rebecca, I'll talk to you very, very soon. (laughs) Thanks.